0: turn your, in your Bibles to Isaiah 2 with me, Isaiah 2, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. prophet. Now, we don't have too many prophets running around today, do we? And so sometimes we can have a not a clear understanding of what the role of a prophet was in the Old Testament. The critical event in the life of a prophet was his transforming encounter with God and his glory. Always having the prophet emerge and ready to tell God's people of God's glory. The prophets were literally called men of the spirit. These men were brought into the council and the purposes of God and then called to be the mouthpiece of God to the world and particularly to Israel and to God's people. And what they often spoke about again and again was what was going to happen, the hope of the future. This is what we see here. Isaiah, a prophet of God, is given a vision to speak to his people. Chapter one is an overview of essentially of the whole message. So the beginning of his the heart of his message really starts here in chapter two. And the first thing he speaks about is the future. It shall come in the latter days. And he gives us incredible vision how the nations will come to God, how the kingdom of God will grow. And then God's message will go out from that kingdom to the world and we will see a radical transformation in people's lives. Now in the midst of their difficulty, what he's doing and the reason he's starting with this future is he's giving them hope because they are in very difficult times. So if you would, just read with me Isaiah chapter 2 and we'll read verses 1 to 5 together. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Israel, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into the plowshares and their spears into the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray for our time. God, we thank you for your word. And this is a word of hope about the future and about the kingdom of God growing and affecting the entire world and how it transforms our lives. Give us ears to hear now, Lord. Give me grace to preach and teach, O Father. Give us hope in a living God who has a plan and is transforming the world step by step. And give us a love for your word and your light that we might want to walk in that path in a straighter way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope is a very powerful motivator, isn't it? When there is no hope from God, what you often see is people will find their hope in something else. And so in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, we see almost the exact same prophecy. Both promise that that the nations will be converted. The temple of Israel... They will come to hear God's word and radically change. Because of God's prophetic promises, Israel had this great hope that kept them going in the midst of the most difficult of times. But that hope was absolutely crushed in around 66 AD. You say, what happened? Well, we know from ancient Roman historians that A Roman governor stole silver from the temple. The Greeks began offering animal sacrifices outside the synagogues, which was the local church of the day. There was a group of men called zealots who were passionate about the holiness of God, and one in particular named Eleazar ben Hanani, or Hanani, revolted, slaughtering Romans, soldiers, driving them out of the city, proclaiming this is the fulfillment of what the prophets have said. Messianic times have come. And for a short time, they did have great prosperity. And many interpreted what was happening there as the fulfillment of what God said was going to happen. They even printed their own coins. Well, it was short-lived. What really happened behind the scenes was Caesar had died. Rome was regrouping, and in 68 AD, two years later, under Titus, 60,000 Roman soldiers came from the north and south and brutally destroyed Israel. The Jews fled into the city of Jerusalem, and by 70 AD, Titus had broken through the outer walls, heading for the temple. The survivors of that original attack headed to the mountain of God, the temple, when the Roman soldiers saw what was happening. They came to the temple with all the priests, men, women inside, and they set it ablaze. Josephus, the ancient historian, describes it like this. This is what he says happened. While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it. Countless people who were caught by them were killed. There was no pity for age, no regard was according to rank. Children and old men, laymen and priests alike were killed. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war. Whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance, they were slaughtered. As the temple was ablaze on a hill, the entire country could see and groaned in pain and defeat. and all hope of a prophetic promise of Israel... And God's kingdom were lost. Now, what led to that confidence that they would revolt in such a way? Well, it was prophetic hope. It was the words of men like Isaiah here that we read. You see, hope is one of the most powerful motivators in our lives. Let me explain. People risk their lives to flee from North Korea to South Korea every year, don't they? Do you know why? Why? Because they hope for a better life. They hope for education for their kids. They hope for a square meal in the evenings. They hope for a roof over their heads. Do you know what? No one is crossing the border and trying to get into Venezuela right now. Venezuela doesn't need to build a wall around its country to keep people out. Do you know why? Because there's no hope in that country. Isaiah 2, he calls God's people to walk in his light, but before he does, he gives a great hope for the future that is supposed to motivate us. The nations will come to faith and begin to hear and obey God's word. The world, with all its wars and battles, will know peace. They will turn their instruments of battle into farming tools. This is the hope the gospel gives. Part of the great value of our faith is how Christ not just promises to improve and transform our life, but also what he promises that he will do in the world. Transform it as the gospel message, the message of Christ, the Messiah, goes out. So here's the main idea today, if you're taking notes, is this, this. We're to walk in the light through the power of future hope. You see, he finishes this prophecy by saying, walk in the light. And so it's no different for us. We are to walk in the light, the truth, what he calls the path here. Yet we do that, holding on to a future hope and a promise of God building his kingdom. Now, his prophecy gives us three hopeful expectations about the future. And we'll jump into those. Here's the first. Number one, God will establish his kingdom. God will establish his kingdom. If you will, look in verse 2 with me in your Bibles. Verse 2. Notice how he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, after his introductory chapter in chapter 1, he opens with eschatology, future times that is. And the book closes with something very similar in chapter 60 and 62. So he opens with this picture of hope, and then he closes with something almost exactly the same now notice those words there are latter days it, it's a hebrew of way of talking about human history so the book of chronicles is called words of the days it's just a hebrew way of expressing things these are my days the days of my walking and so when he talks about latter days here he's talking about the days of the end the latter days particularly of redemption So the question that raises is, when will this happen? These things that he's promising and talking about in the latter days. And the answer is, I don't know. And I'm not sure anybody does. Some think it's when Jesus came. Others think it's a thousand year reign of Christ coming again. And some think that it's when the new heavens and new earth come down. And then and then only will peace be made. But here's what I do know for sure. Acts 2, it's Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit is poured out. The nations are coming to Jerusalem to worship, Jews and Gentiles. Peter preaches his first sermon. And he says, this is what the prophet Joel told you was going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. Now, listen, he quotes Joel doesn't he? In his first sermon, Acts 2.17, this is how he starts it. And in the last days, it shall be. Stop. The problem is, that's not Joel. That's Isaiah. That's what we're looking at here. And so before he actually gives you the prophecy of Joel, of the Holy Spirit being poured out, he quotes the very beginning of this prophecy of Isaiah. And what he's saying is, this is the beginning of the last days. The Messiah has come. The Holy Spirit has come. We are now living in the last days of redemption. And the rest of the New Testament says exactly the same thing. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son. You see, the last days are of God's story of redemption. And they began with the coming of Jesus the Messiah, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And until the time of Christ and he comes again, these are the last days. Now, what will happen? Okay, Rusty, that's, that's when it is what will happen. Look in your scriptures with me, please. Notice how he says there, verse 2, The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. Stop. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, which Israel was a part of, in their worship, nations would place their temples on the highest hills. It was a sign of the greatness of their God and of Their kingdom. It was believed the higher the mountain, the closer to God you would be when you worshipped him, and the more power that your kingdom would have. A kingdom and its God's greatness were directly connected to the greatness of its temple and the mountain that it set upon. Now, the God of the Jews did something quite different. He chose a small hill in Jerusalem to build his temple. When everyone else was chasing mountains, So they could be closer to God, the Jews built their temple on quite a small hill. And notice what he says then. It shall be lifted up above the hills. And the promise here is God's kingdom will grow and will become far greater than the surrounding nations and all their gods. It's saying that everyone knew that the temple of the Jews was on a small hill compared to the temples of other nations. He's talking about the kingdom of God here. And he's saying it will grow, and it will expand, and it will become the greatest here on earth. Now, this idea is very prevalent even today. If you travel through parts of China, if you travel through central Mongolia and Asia, you will come across what they call ovals. And you say, what's an oval? Well, when you come over a hill, especially on a giant hill, on a road or a bike or you're walking, you'll see a giant rock pile on that hill. That's an oval. And what they're doing there is they're worshiping and appeasing the god of that hill. And so every local who comes over, he'll stop his vehicle, get off his bike, he'll go and he'll circle around it counterclockwise three times. And then he'll pick up a stone, he'll put it on it. And if he's got a bit of vodka or a bit of lamb fat or whatever he's got in his pockets, all that good stuff, he'll lay there. As an offering. What he's doing is, he or she, they're appeasing the God of the hill. And they're hoping for safe travel. Now the God of the Bible has a temple built not on the Mount of Olives, which is quite large, but on a small hill in the city of Jerusalem. And when Isaiah promises this hill will be lifted up above all the others... He is promising, though it seems, with all the nations pressing in on Israel. It seems the political structure of the country is struggling. It seems that now the worship is corrupted. God's kingdom will grow. Maybe not now. In the latter days when the Messiah comes, he's given them hope. But notice this also. God never conforms to the religious practices of the nations. He doesn't need a great mountain for his kingdom to grow. God almost always chooses and uses ordinary things to grow His kingdom. This has always been His way. Now, one more thing before I move on. Their hope is your hope. Sometimes we get so discouraged, don't we? Because we say this political candidate won or they lost or it seems like secularism is sweeping through our schools and our country and all through Europe. And we say, where is God? Where is his kingdom? And Isaiah says, this is the vision of the last day. God's kingdom will grow. The gospel message will continue to go out. People will continue to be saved. Hope in me and my promises. And like he has always done, he will do it through small, ordinary things. He doesn't need the political elite. He doesn't need the most beautiful buildings, the most prominent actors. He will use simple, ordinary people who love him and are surrendered to do his will. Amen? Point two. So the first hopeful expectation of his kingdom is that it will continue to grow in the days of the Messiah. Second, the nations will come to know the Lord. Verse two and three, if you look in there in your Bibles with me. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Israel was always called to be missional. They were always called to be a light on the hill. Think about it. When they built the temple, King Solomon, and he prays over the temple. 1 Kings 8, you know what he prays? Listen, let me read it to you. When the foreigner comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all he asks of you, so that the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. He's saying we're building a temple for your presence to be. And when people who don't know you come and they worship here, answer their prayers so that they will know you. Israel, the temple, was always to be missional. Now notice what he says here about these people, the nations, teaching and walking. Look in your scriptures with me. That he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his path. So the promise here is in the last days the nations will come and they will begin with Jerusalem which I think is at Pentecost and they will continue until the last days and I think then you will see a massive conversion of people from all nations. But notice he says this, they will hear his words and begin to walk in his path. Hear and walk. They will, I think, hear the gospel. They will hear the message of the lord and there it calls that the law god's word and hearing they will begin to walk in his path meaning that they will not walk any longer according to their own will or their own desires but they will be changed they will become his followers and the nations will begin to walk in his paths now i read a book years ago about an old shaman in south america and he said in his culture everybody Every man and woman had their own path, and you walked it when you needed solitude. And he said when people became Christians, they called them people who walk Jesus' paths. That's a great description for a believer, isn't it? And that's what he's saying here. When men and women come to know the Lord, they are walking on his path. But not only notice that they will come in and hear the word, the word will go out. Look in your Bibles with me once more. For out of Zion will go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The message now changes. In the last days, people will come to Jerusalem to hear about God's kingdom and the gospel. But the message of the Messiah also will go out to the nation. Now, when Christ died and he rose again and the nations come and they hear Peter preaching in their own language, they're there in Jerusalem. And we're seeing thousands converted. Do you know Christ's last words to them? Acts 1-9. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, I think this is describing the gospel as people came in first to hear the words of Christ and hear Peter preach. But then the gospel went out to the nations. And you say, okay, Rusty, I, I get that, but is that how they saw it? That's how we see it. But is that how Peter and the apostles understood it as well? Well, absolutely. Let me read to you 1 Peter 1.10. Listen to this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. Notice, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. You say, okay, put that together. Peter is saying to the nations, the churches outside of Jerusalem, that Isaiah, filled with the Spirit of Christ, prophesied of the things of Christ. And when you are taking out that message, which was the message of Isaiah, they were bringing it back to Isaiah, you are doing exactly what Isaiah said would happen, the prophet's. In other words, Isaiah said the the nations, the gospel, the message would go out to the nations and Peter's saying that's exactly what you're doing. When you're taking Isaiah out to the nations and saying, here, read this, this is the Messiah, this is who Jesus is, that's what Isaiah said you would do. Be encouraged. So yes, they knew exactly what Isaiah was saying and they connected it to the gospel going out from Jerusalem. Now, I think that's our job still today, isn't it? We are to take the gospel out to the nations while standing on a future hope and promise that God will bring them into his paths. James Gilmore uh, was a Scottish missionary in the 1800s, and he went to Asia, left everything behind, got a bit of a medical training before he went, and when he got there, he had a tent. And I love this name. He put a big sign on it. It said, The tent of the medical hall of the religion of Jesus. (laughs) Isn't that great? And he went out all over Asia. One time when he was out, he was actually quite exhausted. He'd been preaching by himself in some very rough terrain for a long time. And he's coming back, and he comes next to an Asian man. I'm not sure if he's Mongolian or Chinese And he wants to share the gospel with him. And he knows God has promised that the nations will come to know him. And so you know what he does? He gets off of his camel. And he walks with the man. Mile after mile after mile. Day after day after day after day. day, So that he could share the gospel with him. And when he gets home, his feet are so bloody and torn up and he's so exhausted and sick, that he has to lay in bed for weeks on end. Why would he do that? Because he had a hope and a promise that the gospel will go out to the nations. And God will bring the nations into his paths. I heard a pastor several years ago say, I woke up in a big church and I realized I had a lot of great ministry going on and I didn't know any non-Christians. And I asked myself, Rusty, wow, I've never pastored a church that size, but it's so easy for me to spend all my time with you and realize I don't know any non-believers. I want to ask you that question. The gospel goes out to the nations. We are in the nations. Do you know non-Christians? Do you intentionally pursue Friendships with non-believers. God gives us a hope here that he has a plan and purpose to convert people from every nation to grow his kingdom. Our job is to be people who walk in his path and to fearlessly build relationships and friendships with people who don't know him to pray for them, to love them, to ask them good questions, to have them at our Thanksgiving meals. And when God opens an opportunity to speak gospel truth to them. So the first hopeful expectation is that the kingdom will grow, and the second is that it's going to go out to the nations. And here's the third, and we'll finish with this. It's peace on earth, that the gospel will be, bring such a transformation that we'll see peace on earth. Verse 4, if you'll read that with me in your scriptures. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This verse is hard. It's a challenge. Many think that this is describing what the world will be when the gospel goes out. Others think it's no, no, Rusty. It's a picture of the new heavens and new earth. Some say it's the thousand-year reign. Both could be true. But what if It's describing the change that has happened in those people's lives who have heard the gospel, heard about the Messiah, and now their new walk, the path that they walk in. Notice this. God changes how we relate to each other. In the last days, God will give judgment to the nations that have come to faith, individuals in particular. Notice he's saying no longer will they need King Solomon, No longer will they need King David to judge between them. He is describing those who have come to faith that are walking on his paths, and now they are looking to him for judgment. In other words, when there's issues between them, they don't take up the sword anymore. They look to God for their judgment and how to resolve their issues. Is that what we see in the New Testament? Well, absolutely. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 6.4. What? Paul says here, if you have such cases, meaning disputes, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He's saying you don't need to go to the kings anymore. You don't need to go to the justices. You need to come and find resolution in the church and amongst God's people and God's word. Now, then he gives the results of That type of justice. Notice, they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and spears in the pruning hooks. Here are the results of the justice of God changing people's lives. They're living by God's word. They're not killing their neighbors anymore, even though they might disagree. Those who owe them money, they're dealing with it by God's word. They're coming to him. Their life now is ruled by peace because they're walking in the paths of the Messiah. When the gospel was first preached to the nations, you know, we forget how savage often the cultures were that the gospel went into. Some of the first missionaries in South Pacific were these wonderful Methodists by the name of William and Marie Williams. I want to read you what she describes very briefly about their culture that they went into. Listen we were deeply alarmed. The ground of our alarm is a barbarous custom amongst this people of plundering a tribe when the chief dies. Hungi, the chief, who had been fighting with the people of Wangaroa, received a musket ball in his lungs, which meant he would die. And the consequence would be that the tribe And the missionaries there that belonged to the tribe would be plundered and have everything taken. When your chief died, there was no one there to protect you. They invaded. They took everything. And if you put up resistance, maybe they took you. She goes on to describe how they ate their slaves, how they threw them on fires, and they roasted them for dinner. When people... No, God, those spears used to torture, terrorize, and control people are changed to tools used in the garden. He's talking about a radical gospel transformation in the nations. And as the gospel is embraced and people are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, whole nations of people turn away from fighting and turn towards each other to loving and peace. This is our hope of the kingdom of God going to the nations. This is part of why we support missions. Now, has that fully occurred? No, it hasn't. And I think you will see the fullness of that happening only when Christ comes again. How do we think and live this? Let's close with this. Um. How do we take this from our head to our heart? Okay, Rusty, I understand what you're saying. Now apply that to my life in a deeper way. Verse 5. This is how Isaiah applies it to you. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's his application. Walk in the light of the Lord. What does that look like? Well, Christ says, I am the light of the world. Who reveals the truth about God to the world. I am the Messiah. His truth changes more when we are brought under its influence, just like light does. Here's what I mean. God, the beginning was your conversion. Now God's got a great work of bringing light to every room of your life. Think about it like this. Before you became a believer, before I became a believer, our lives are like a like an old house that had no light coming in, none. The windows and the doors were boarded up tightly. There was dust all over the floors. There were nasty snakes and crocodiles and lions in the corner. We don't really have lions in our houses here. Okay. And spiders and terrible things. The, the furniture was clothed, was covered. You know how people would take those old sheets and cover furniture with that? And there was dust and nastiness all over it. And when the gospel came and you became a believer, suddenly light came into that house and began to drive back the darkness. And suddenly for the first time you begin to see and understand what was in the corners of your life. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize there was such dirt in my life. That's conversion. But that's not the end. He says, walk in this light, which means God's will is for you and for me to bring His truth, His Word, the power of the Spirit to every dirty corner in my life. That's what it means to walk in the light. So your emotions, anger, bitterness, jealousy, anxiety, are to be changed into love, joy, peace, patience as we walk in the truth of his light in the scriptures. It means that we are to go into the cellar of our lives with all the past things that we've done and we feel so ashamed about, and we're to say the gospel cleans that out. It's all clean and washed and forgiven now. I'm bringing the light of gospel into my cellar. It means the light of Christ must guide our thoughts from the thoughts that wake us in the morning to what put us to bed in the evening. Lastly, it means our actions, why we do and say the things we do, our imaginations, and every dark and hidden room full of secrets, guilt, and shame must be brought under the influence of Christ, His Word, and His Spirit. From attic to basement of our lives, we are to set our whole life in the light of Christ and His Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is walking in His life. This is walking in His path. And this is what He calls us to by His power and by His grace. And He gives us an amazing hope that His kingdom will grow and go out and it's powerful to change the nations and to change us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that sometimes we don't fully understand this prophetic text. But what we know is true is your kingdom will continue to go out. It'll change lives radically. It'll change cultures. It'll change people. Lord, and we want to be a people that believe that, stand on that hope, and go into our neighborhoods, our schools, our gyms, Lord, our classes where we learn sewing and other things, and intentionally, fearlessly build relationships with people who don't know you so that they could be exposed to your truth, the power of the gospel, and come to know you And then that dusty old house of their life, filled with dirt, shut up, will be opened. Christ will come and dwell there and radically change it from the inside out. Lord, we want to continue to walk in that hope and we want to be a church that takes the gospel to our friends and our neighbors and the nations. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.